This discussion is a recording of a panel from a recent innovation forum event run in partnership with Walgreens Boots Alliance that focused on the intersection between climate change, human health, and the role of business. In this session, our panelists discussed the climate health issues where business can make a difference. Speaking on the panel were Dr. Richard Smith, the chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Susie Parker, the commercial leader of global sustainability at GSK Consumer Health, and Mark Donovan, chief pharmacist at Boots UK. The conversation was moderated by Toby Webb, founder of Innovation Forum. A very simple question for our opening speakers to make some comments about, and then we're going to move into Q&A based on what they've said. And the question is really, what are the climate health issues where business can make a difference? I'm going to ask our speakers to make some opening comments on the subject for a few minutes each. Joining us is Richard Smith, Chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Welcome to you, Richard. Mark Donovan, Chief Pharmacist from Boots UK. Good morning to you, Mark. Susie Parker, Commercial Leader for Global Sustainability at GSK Consumer Health. And we hope at some point during the session that Dr. Aaron Bernstein and the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health may be joining us as well. But let's get started with you, Dr. Smith. Looking forward to some opening comments from you to help us set the scene here on where you see the business opportunities and roles in making a difference on climate health. So I am the chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, which I fear none of you will ever have heard of, because one of the things we need to do is raise our brand. But we've actually been going about eight years. We have almost all the main medical bodies in Britain as members, the Royal College of Physicians, Surgeons, GPs, Nurses, and the Lancet, and the BMJ, and the BMA. And our members between them have some 900,000 members. So that's the majority of the NHS workforce. So we exist to mitigate the effects of climate change, to support adaptation, because climate change is already here. Something like 7% of the hospitals in Britain are prone to flooding. And we want to emphasize the health benefits because if we were actually to live in a decarbonized world, it would be a lot healthier than the world we live in at the moment. But I'm also, I have links with business in the sense, I'm also the chair of Patients Know Best, which is a company that sucks together all the health and social care records of patients and puts them under the control of the patient in one place. And this is about shifting power from clinicians to patients, which will be important itself in adapting to climate change. I also spent a year at the Stanford, although I'm a doctor by background, I spent a year at the Stanford Business School doing something called the Sloan Programme, which is a bit ironic for those that can understand my accent. And that really changed the whole way that I thought about the world. And my kind of philosophy is that we all have to work together, just as Una was saying. So Margaret Chan, the director of WHO, talked about the big problems in the world, including climate change, need a response from whole of government and whole of society. And business, I'm sure, has a vital role. And that includes fossil fuel companies who are both part of the problem and part of the solution. And I thought I would run through the kind of levels of action and discuss how business and we can cooperate. Because we need action at every single level to counter this problem. So internationally, one of the great benefits of health professionals is that we do have worldwide networks. I don't know whether you remember International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, who actually won the Nobel Prize for their role in reducing the possibility of nuclear war. We recently 
organized publishing and editorial in over 200 health journals around the world, including the New England Journal of Medicine, the Chinese Science Bulletin, the BMJ, the Lancet, making the point that we have to do everything we can to stay below 1.5, and that we can only do that if high-income countries make bigger cuts and we shift resources to lower-income countries. Business, too, has a global influence. There's lots of possibilities that I think of working together there. Because something I've discovered, I mean, if you're in government, you hear all the time about problems. People come and say, this is awful, you have to do something. But I think if you can go to governments with solutions, if all the different players who might not have the same view, like business, like health people, get together and think about, can we present something to government that can really be helpful, we're much more likely to be listened to. Then we work at a national level. We lobby all of the four governments in the UK. You're probably aware we've got four NHSs, not just one. We work with lots of other groups. And in many ways, we concentrate on accountability. The Queen here in Britain made, I think, a very smart remark when she said, I wish these people wouldn't just talk, but would actually do. Because it's rather easy to make promises, but it's very tough to implement. And I think that's a place Business knows a lot more, I think, about implementation than government does. So I think there's lots of room for us to work together at a national level, as well as with energy suppliers, environmentalists, agriculture, transport, trade, and other professional groups. I mean, I noticed Yuna said that somehow the health thing doesn't come through as strongly as it should do in this debate. In the previous 25 COPs, they've never talked about health. It will come up a bit in this one. And then at a regional level, a city level, we've worked with the Mayor of London on reducing air pollution. And that, again, business has a big role there. Then we concentrate a lot on the health system. So the health system, as people are probably aware, if you put all the health systems together, we'd be the fifth largest emitter of countries in the world. In the US, it's 12% of carbon emissions come from the health system. In the NHS, it's 5%. Most health systems, if you look at it, have rising levels of carbon emissions. Uh, the Lancet countdown showed that a few years ago, which is clearly crazy when this is the major threat to health in the world today. But the NHS in England does now have a comprehensive plan, including all aspects for reaching net zero. And actually, that is run by the former uh, director of the UK Health Alliance, Nick Watts, who's the NHS chief sustainability officer. I mean, the reality is nobody knows how to get a health system to net zero, but we can have a good guess at the things that need to be done. It depends a lot on research and innovation. And something like two thirds of the footprint of the NHS is from suppliers. So we obviously have to work with suppliers and 20 percent of the footprint is drugs. So clearly, WBA has a big role to play there in making sure we use drugs much more sensibly. Then we work with our members at different levels. Most of those are disinvesting in fossil fuels, they're reinvesting, but they recognize the, the necessity to reinvest. We work at a professional level, so people are realizing that clinical pathways have to change. And again, business has a big role here. We've been working with AstraZeneca on reducing the carbon footprint of their clinical trials. I mean, anaesthetic gases, inhalers, digital care, uh, putting patients in charge. And lastly, the personal level. You know, we all have to change how we live. And as Una just said, you've got pharmacists around the world having daily contact 
with consumers. Well, in Britain, GPs see half a million patients a year. And increasingly, they are talking to patients about climate change and health and how their health can benefit and the planet can benefit from making changes. So I think there's enormous room for working together. So many interesting points there that I'd like to come back to. In the meantime, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to some comments from you. So I'm Ari Bernstein. I direct the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I'm a practicing pediatrician at Boston Children's. And I've spent the last 20 years trying to connect the climate issue to health. We've done a great deal to move this topic forward. The climate conversation has been for a long time sort of shockingly absent of human concern. And we can see clearer than ever that climate is, that was published in hundreds of journals, one of the biggest health issues we face. But we haven't actually, I would argue, put it in the right context. And let me give you an example. If I'm seeing a patient, a child who has asthma, who's suffocating because they can't breathe, and the parent of that child is the leader of the world's most prominent climate advocacy organization, and I say to that parent, if you had a choice between reducing the fossil fuel air pollution that is causing your child to suffocate in front of us for the purposes of preventing that suffocation or for giving them a livable future, which would you choose? I don't know a parent on this earth that would choose the livable future before the suffocation before me right now. And yet we continue to talk about the health benefits of climate action when we reduce fossil fuel use. The fact that that causes 8 million deaths every year, one in five deaths is from fossil fuel air pollution. In the United States, it's 300,000. It's about half the COVID mortality, more than half of our COVID annual COVID mortality every year from air pollution. We talk about those as the co-benefits. These are the secondary benefits. These are the things that don't matter as much. It's really quite startling to me as a clinician that we've, we've really put the cart before the horse. The reason we don't have climate action in many places in the world is because we haven't done this. We haven't brought climate down to size. We haven't made it an issue that's personal, that people in their everyday lives can understand. We haven't made it about the root cause of inequity in our world. And so business's role here is to help bridge that gap. We need to make this issue personal. We need to work together to Richard's point in partnership. The second point I'll make is that businesses that I work with all around the world want to do more on climate, but they can't because they will be at a competitive disadvantage. And what we lack right now is the moral courage of the private sector to engage with academics, to engage with policymakers and say, we know that this is what science and reality shows us. And we will not stand by and pretend as though our inaction is okay. We recognize that we can't go as far as we want to because the pricing in the marketplace makes it so that we can't do it. We're at that point in history where we all have to stand up and hold the people who can change the rules of the game accountable. That's been the challenge for climate change, isn't it? It's been this sort of slightly esoteric or slightly macro challenge that people struggle to understand what it means for them. And in our work in plastics, it's become very clear that the impact on human health in the plastics debate is really now the next thing that's spurring it on beyond the Blue Planet work. Making that link is clearly highly important. Let me turn now to Susie Parker from GSK. Love to hear your views on where this can lead for you and how we can make this into an opportunity to improve our lives. First of all, I think Dr. Bernstein's made half my case for me because I'm also going to talk a little bit about air pollution. Obviously, GSK is a consumer health company, and as a healthcare company, we know that climate and health are interrelated. 
and we see it every day. We have a large respiratory health business and we see the impact of air pollution on many, many people around the world. The WHO said that 90% of people are living with air pollution levels that are beyond what they would consider safe. So this is not just a China issue or India issue. It's everywhere. And business can do a lot about that. I'll give you an example of a couple of ways. So the first one is business is big and has resources. It can invest and pull people together to actually learn and understand what's happening. An example from my world would be GSK working to found the Clean Breathing Institute. It's an independent group of some of the experts and thought leaders around the world. And the intent of that was to really understand what is the impact of air pollution and what can we do? What could people do to mitigate the health impact of air pollution today? So much of it is caused by fossil fuels. And most of that conversation is about 2030 and 2050. But by working with the Clean Breathing Institute, we've really understood that the impact's not our children's generation. The impact is everyone today. And just being able to bring people together get that information in itself as business is helpful to us as a business with the respiratory lens to it, but also helpful to us to engage with partners. The second area is then when you get that information, you can do something with it, particularly if you work in partnership. So we've been working very closely, bringing the Clean Breathing Institute together with FIP, the International Federation of Pharmacists, to look at, as we know, as we start to learn what people can do to mitigate the impact on their health, How do we get that out to people in a way that is easy to understand, easy to access, particularly with something like air pollution, where the people who suffer are often, again, those with health inequalities? How do we get that out to people? And that's where we're seeing, again, we can partner with pharmacists, with healthcare professionals to get very simple messages out about what people can do to change their health today, but also for climate change. So, Part of that messaging is, is asking people to move away from fossil fuels for the longer term, but also for the shorter term. We're certainly getting a theme on air pollution here, and we do have a closing video from the Clean Breathing Institute to talk about that. It is bizarre to us, really, if we sit here and look at the numbers that Dr. Bernstein referred to and the comments you just made, that the air pollution issue is not a larger one. But clearly what we need to do is help empower consumers to put the right pressure on to clean things up. And of course, we're seeing great progress there with the end of diesel engines and some petrol engines in in cities by 2025 and beyond. And so progress is being made. But really interested now to hear from you, Mark Donovan, from your position of Chief Pharmacist for Boots, as to how you feel that your company can make a difference and others that you work with. We know the solutions to climate change crisis not be through just one organisation, but through collaboration. And that's why we think that this is a really important start for this discussion, a a collective understanding and a joint approach to what faces us. And at Boots, which of course is a healthcare organisation, as well as a large business, we have what's called a health-centred CSR strategy, placing the health and well-being of the communities we serve at the heart of the work that we do. So we welcome this debate but are very keen, of course, to work on actions which will recognise the impact of human health through climate change. As Richard just mentioned last month, over 200 medical journals published an article describing the catastrophic harm to health of climate change. And as a healthcare provider, we know that that will affect hundreds of thousands of patients which use our services and seek advice from our pharmacists and their pharmacy teams every single week. 
And I'm sure we'll explore the areas of impact most likely to be seen during this session. And to Cheryl's question and Cheryl's point, mental health is going to be a particularly important element of that, I'm sure. And how do we address that with compassion and empathy, which drives us to action on behalf of our patients and our customers and through the work of our business? Of particular interest and focus for us is the widening of the health inequality gap through climate change. The impact of climate change disproportionately affects the most vulnerable people in society, including children and elderly people, ethnic minorities, poorer communities, people with underlying health conditions, of course. And as community pharmacies, I believe we have a huge role to play in identifying and closing that gap. So that's of great interest to us. We also have a very important role to play in raising the awareness of this topic. We know awareness is rising on climate change and we've touched upon it so far, but to what extent society is linking it to health impact is clearly of interest. And we recognise working with partners and friends like GSK and others, we'll have a role to play in helping understanding. Dr Bernstein is right healthcare is personal, it's individualized. And how do we as healthcare providers on the front line help those people accessing our support, understand that personal impact and, and navigate it? And of course, as we're a business working in health, you know, this is important to us as a business, but we're also a major employer. And we also have a role to play in reflecting this internally to our team members and colleagues too. You know, looking after our people is vitally important, of course. And that internal focus as being a big business shouldn't be missed either. I'm going to ask some questions now for the panel, and then we'll try and bring some in from the Q&A. You talked about the health inequality gap, and I wondered how could that, Mark, be a, a business opportunity for Boots? I mean, it's one of those big issues we've covered, isn't it? Like, you have to think about what does that mean? How can a business act? Tell us a bit more about how your business can help close that gap and, and make it a business opportunity. Well, it is a business opportunity, and I'll explain that in a moment. But more importantly, it's the right thing to do, to be aware of and to address. Health inequity is an issue currently. It has been throughout the pandemic, and there's plenty of evidence of that. And it's growing and widening. And we, as community pharmacies, are one of the healthcare providers which apply an inverse care law. Actually, we are in the communities which are disproportionately affected by health in inequity. We have identified, for example, 200 of our pharmacies across the UK, which are in areas of deprivation, which do have this diversity and which impacts health inequity. And that allows us to have a sharper focus in those pharmacies to address that inequity as in the current healthcare system, either through the pandemic, as we've identified, but also through hesitancy and in, in take up of health interventions and medical interventions as well. And we'll have a role to encourage, advise, develop understanding, support those people who perhaps struggle to access healthcare. And pharmacy is in a great place to do that wherever it is in the world, and particularly, clearly, our focus here in the UK. So that is a business opportunity. But for me, it's more important to be seen that it's the right thing to do as we are a healthcare provider in a society where this gap exists and through climate change may well widen. So by doing the right thing, you can innovate and create a business opportunity out of it through closer connections with communities. Okay, thank you, Mark. Susie, you talked about a partnership with health professionals. Tell us a bit more about that. And given that health and medicine can be a tricky area for business in terms of how much they influence the agenda, what does that mean to you in terms of partnership? Where's the opportunity there 
to get that balance right, develop commercial opportunities and to, as Mark said, do the right thing? I think there isn't a balance. If we can help people get the right medication, the right advice, the right OTC that they need to improve their health, it's not a balance effectively what we should be doing. It's one of the reasons I'm very excited and keen to work in the consumer health business because it feels more like an industry where doing your day job is doing the right thing as opposed to having to balance on it. In terms of what that means, things like we invest very, very heavily in what we call our expert programs, which is getting deep medical understanding, maybe in some cutting edge areas like what's the latest learning in air pollution, and then translating that into materials that can be shared with health professionals all over the world to help them do their job better. Some of that might be about the medicine. Some of that might be coaching on how to approach and have a conversation with a patient as they come to the pharmacist. So how would you start this conversation? How would you engage people? How would you help them find the right solutions for them? Sometimes those solutions are products. Sometimes the solutions may be free. For example, think about the route you take to work or the route your children take to school and look at how you might walk down a road that is less polluted. I'm always looking for the areas where you can do good and do good business. And I'm not apologetic about that because if we can do good and do good business, the investors will come, the money will come, we can do more of it. And there are many, many places where the two aren't incompatible. In fact, they really are symbiotic and we should be doing them. Let me ask the two doctors for their points of view. Richard Smith, let me come to you. Uh, you posed in the chat the notion of a competitive advantage by acting on climate change. We've heard some examples of that from Boots and GSK. What would you like to add to that conversation? I mean, I think what's happening, certainly in this country, is that climate change has risen very, very high up the agenda, perhaps because of COP26. People are very aware that it's here now. It's not something in the future. We're seeing floods, we're seeing fires, we're seeing heat waves. So people are very concerned about it. I mean, a recent survey of children in this country showed that 60% are really anxious about climate change. Something like 50% think that we're going to, the human race is going to become extinct. So against that backcloth of tremendous concern, and I recognise it's not the same in every country, and maybe partly because of COP26 being held here, it's particularly high. If you're a company that can be seen to be out there thinking about this, responding. So like I said, 20% of the footprint of the NHS is from drugs. So if you're a manufacturer saying, we will do everything we can to get the carbon footprint in our drugs down as low as possible. We as a company will do this. We will look to sequester the carbon that we inevitably have to use. We will work to make sure that drugs are well used. I mean, we know something like half of drugs are never taken. So clearly distributing those drugs which have a carbon footprint that are not taken. So there are so many ways, I think, in which companies can get out there and say, we're ahead of this. We are the people who are making this happen. And just as Susie mentioned investors, I think you see that investors are going rapidly down that route. We don't want to invest in companies who are unwilling to accept this, unwilling to change. So I think the investors and the opportunities are pointing in the same direction, in my mind. Aaron Bernstein, you made some great points earlier about companies needing to send the right message about incentives to change the structural challenges in the market, as well as perhaps focusing on the, the products and services we've discussed. Let's imagine as a consequence of this conference, 
you are called into the boardroom of Walgreens, Boots Alliance and GSK and asked to advise them on what they should do next, what would your advice be? I think it would start if WBA is putting health at the center, we need to ask real questions about the products we're selling. I'm sorry to say that as a physician, as a pediatrician, I walk into some of those stores and I'm thinking I see kids coming in there after school with access to extremely unhealthy products. And we need to really look at that. And frankly, this issue that Richard raised of the carbon footprint of healthcare, the best way to decarbonize healthcare, which as Richard points, is a disproportionate share, including most rich countries, is driven by people getting sick. The best way to decarbonize healthcare is to prevent illness. WBA just invested heavily in clinical care. And I recognize, and I think it's critically important that at least in my understanding of Walgreens, and I, I grew up right next to Deerfield, Illinois. So I've, I have many friends and family who work and have worked at Walgreens, that there are enormous opportunities to address some of the foundations of the sickness that is preventable in this country and around the world, because frankly, WBA and the, particularly the W and the B parts of WBA are now the general store. They're where the community comes for the basic goods and resources they need. And that comes with a huge responsibility of the community. What are the foods that are accessible that can prevent obesity, which is by far and away public health threat number one right now to children in the United States? What is the responsibility of the company to advancing climate solutions? And as to the point I made earlier is that WBA can't do it alone. No one can do it alone, but WBA is partnering. How can we partner to make sure that the policies are in place, that the actions that we all want to see to get rid of the air pollution, to make sure that the choices that put us on a sustainable path are the ones that give us the competitive advantage that we want. These are the critical issues that I think need to be addressed by the board of WBA. Great points. I'm sure they'll be duly noted and there's a lot to unpack there. We're getting some great questions and comments on, on the chat. There's particularly one on the COP front, which I thought was very interesting. Liz Tinlin is asking, why is the connection between climate change and human health not front and centre yet at things like COP? Is it politically unacceptable, too complicated, poorly understood, deemed unactionable or something else? Let me turn to Mark first. What are your views? Why this is not happening at COP, <laughs> centre stage? Why are we doing it a week before? Because I don't see this particular event that we're holding on the agenda there in the same way that's being done here. So what do you think that might be? I'd have a very similar question to Liz too. I think it's such an important area and we need to do better collectively to get that conversation happening at that level. I'd be very interested to understand other people's thoughts of how and why it's not raised at that level. There are so many important points that need to be made, to be heard and acted upon. We all need to think of our business, how it's linking climate change, linking into a health world, whether we are an organisation that champions health and advises patients and consumers on their health and do better in this space. The link between climate change and health impact is quite an interesting one and why it isn't being raised at uh, the highest levels. 
how society is picking up on climate change and how it's impacting them personally and their family and friends as this matter progresses, I think is quite an interesting issue to explore and making it personal will hopefully gather some more traction and momentum on the actions needed to resolve it. So how do we collectively, I'm answering a question with a question, but how do we collectively make it more personal so that people choose to act in a personal way? Susie, similar question to you, I suppose. What are your views on why this isn't more front and centre? I mean, government loves to talk about how big business, particularly our current administration in the UK, how big business can help solve the problems. What are the levels of conversation that you've been having that you can tell us about with government that helps perhaps try and answer some of this question? In terms of taking the you know, driving awareness and taking the conversation, we are a sponsor at COP and we'll be in both the blue zone and the green zone. Some of that activation will be around air pollution driving awareness both with governments but also beyond government is really really important and we are engaging in that if i go back to liz's question as a consumer i'm trying to think why is it not coming through and i i just wonder whether you know kind of there's been big movements like greenpeace then blue planet things bubble up and you become aware of them and then then things happen And I wonder in this one whether there's two things that we could do differently and better. The first one is the awareness driving, making sure that the big NGOs are getting the help they need, the big charities to drive awareness. What could business do to drive awareness to get it on the radar is the first thing. And secondly, kind of climate change seems like it came out of big science. It's physics. It's what's happening with the numbers. It's measuring the ice caps. Bringing, again, as both our doctors here and and as Mark has talked about, just bringing the connectivity together. I know even in my organisation, we continue to work to remind people that we want to bring down our use of fossil fuels, not just for climate, but also for air pollution. The two are interlinked and get the double win. I think probably it's on us and on everyone to raise the awareness of the impact on health and to give it its time in the sun because then the attention will come but also to tie the two together and say it's not one or the other. They're both interlinked and the short and long-term benefits to, to addressing these issues, benefits that will affect your children today, your my son's allergies in the next allergy season, as well as their life when they're adults. I want to finish off by addressing two points. The first is the digitalization of healthcare. We've heard a lot about that from WEF reports, the fourth industrial revolution, digitalization of healthcare, personalized healthcare. It's a fascinating area where technology is moving fast. So I'd like us all to perhaps talk about that for a minute. And then let's close with a question about justice in the sense of when we look at where the COVID vaccines are going, we all can see from the news there's a very large hole in developing countries and there's been some hoarding and, and some perhaps what's been regarded as selfishness by richer countries. And of course, when it comes to impacts of climate change and health, we know those in poorer countries in the global south, however we want to term it, are going to suffer more, suffer faster, suffer harder. So let's finish off by talking about how we can perhaps look at that as some form of opportunity rather than simply a moral duty. And of course, it is both. But let's start with the, the digitalization of personalized healthcare things, if you, any of you have some views on that. Richard, you mentioned it earlier, so I'm going to come to you first. What are the emerging links there? I know there's no silver bullet here, but could this be a significant part of the solution? It's definitely part. And if you look at the NHS plan on getting to net zero, the digital healthcare features. So as I said, I'm the chair of Patients Know Best, 
And I think giving patients not only access to their records, but control of all their records is a significant shift. Because as Dr. Bernstein said, you know, the best kind of way to reduce the carbon footprint of healthcare is people not to have to use healthcare. Most healthcare these days is about people with long-term chronic diseases. And how well those people do, in the end, doesn't depend on clinicians. It depends on them themselves and whether they can change their lives in order to live healthier lives. In Britain, about one in 20 journeys on the road is linked to the NHS, which perhaps sounds surprising until you think that the NHS is about 10% of the economy. It's people going to and from work, people going to and from clinics and supplies being delivered. So clearly, if you can stop a lot of those journeys and things can be done online, then you can reduce the carbon footprint. And we've done studies to show that is the case. And probably something like 50% of consultations that go on between a clinician and a patient could probably be done online. But the real benefit actually comes from changing the pathways. So just to give a very quick example, a physician who worked with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, the tradition in Britain has been to see those people every six months, regardless of whether they're well or not. But most of the time, people are well, and then they have flare-ups, and that's characteristic of lots of long-term conditions. So if you shift the practice, as this clinician did, so that patients, by having electronic access to all their records, all their results in real time, can signal and say, I'm fine at the moment, I don't need to be seen. What he did was reduce outpatient appointments, he reduced emergency admissions, he reduced hospital bed days, And people were seen within a week, rather previously it took six weeks. So the real benefits of digital healthcare come from changing the way that medicine is delivered, not just doing the same thing online. Aaron, I know you have to leave us in just a minute. I wondered if you wanted to summarise any final thoughts you had in, in, in your one minute remaining, and then we'll carry on for the last few minutes with the rest of the panel. I want to reiterate the important opportunities that we've been discussing, particularly for organizations like WBA to lead on this. I picked on WBA, but I also want to praise it. I've seen this company grow from being a kid to being a very small thing to being a very big thing. And it's done a lot to advance the goals that we all share, whether it's on carbon, thinking about the health of the people they serve. And I think that's the charge of the moment is how we can put health first, whether it's at COP in the business practice. Because at the end of the day, if we ask ourselves why we're trying to address climate change, it's not to save the planet, it's to save ourselves. I also want to finish with a remark about equity and this issue of the vaccines. And also, frankly, that inequities create the fissures through which crises like climate or COVID course through, right? So pandemics and climate thrive upon festering inequality. These things show us in the most painful way what we need to fix. The argument I made about preventing disease as the best way to decarbonize can be expanded to pandemic risk. So we've done a lot of work. We had an international task force at Harvard this summer, published a major report on preventing pandemics. We've heard a lot of talk about containment and preparedness. That's actually not good enough. It's critical. We need vaccines. We need drugs. But we're not going to vaccinate or medicate or test our way out of pandemic risk And the present circumstance makes that abundantly clear. We still have something like 10% of all people in Africa vaccinated. When you look at the root cause of our pandemic risk, it has everything to do with how humanity is engaging with nature. If we really want to promote health equity, the solution to pandemics involves conserving nature. And that means corporations that make use of resources coming from particularly the tropics need to be very careful about what their effects are 
on the utilization of resources, whether it's palm oil in West Africa, whether it's rainforest products coming out of the Amazon. This is not just about a social good, folks. This is about driving the emergence of disease and protecting health equity because prevention at the source of pandemics. We have a whole coalition focused on this now involving most of the major conservation groups. Many of the major health system strengthening organizations around the world have partnered to really focus on prevention because of health equity. And we're doing this because, again, the conversation on pandemic response has been after the fact. It's how can we do more sick care? How can we take care of people after the horse is out of the barn? And we've got to do that. We have to work upstream. Uh, and when we do that, we get health equity benefits. And of course, conserving forests in the tropics is a major win for the climate. So it's another win-win opportunity. And I would encourage WBA to think about its corporate operations and how it can get that kind of win-win on the board. Let me give some opportunity for some closing remarks on either of those themes to you, Susie, and then in closing to you, Mark. I think I'm reiterating very much of what everybody's been saying, actually, that this is something that we need to work together on. Whether you're talking about health inequity or the climate change work, we cannot solve this alone. It's something that when you're in business, we're going to need to do top down and bottom up within the business. And we can be very successful that way. So I know we've got people from businesses listening in that people are thinking about what this means for their corporate strategy. But I'd also encourage people to look at what this also means for their employees. We have a lot of success when we engage. We do a lot of grassroots work. We have a group called the Attenborough Group, who's self-formed in the UK to look at how much more we could be doing in this space. So internally, we're kind of building partnerships. Externally, we're having, having actually a lot of fun working with WBA, figuring out what we can do. And it really is figuring out. We don't have the answers, but we are making progress by rolling up our sleeves, getting our hands dirty and working together to figure out what we might do and then trying it and going forward. So I think probably my closing remarks are it's about partnership. We need to work together and come together to do it. Mark, let me turn over to you and ask you to condense your final thoughts into about 30 seconds, if you wouldn't mind. I would agree with Dr. Smith completely on the digitalization and how he, he contextualized that and our, it would align with our research that we've recently done with patients through the pandemic of access in healthcare. From a justice point of view, you know, as with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are globally as strong as the weakest member, really, and larger countries need to do more and faster and larger businesses need to commit to more change and faster too. I'm pleased to work for WBA and in Boots we have a commitment to be zero by 2040 and have done some wonderful things to get us to that place. But we recognise the importance of us stepping up and working with partners and understanding that context as a large organisation and making that change and encouraging other people to do that too. And that's part of the reason why I would work for WBA and helping our organisation as a health organisation make that impact in individualised and personalised healthcare journeys. We're out of time, but I'd really like to thank you, Mark, uh, you, Richard, and you, Susie, and, and Aaron as well. I think, I think we really started to unpack some of the opportunities here, but also helped frame the challenges. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.